You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Glenn Lowry, host of The Glenn Show here at bloggingheads.tv. Thanks for tuning in. The episode you're about to see is my interview with fabled editor and critic Leon Wieseltier, with whom I worked many years ago quite closely when he was literary editor at the New Republic magazine. Leon is launching a new venture, a journal of politics and culture that he calls Liberties. And he and I have an extended discussion, I think quite interesting about this venture. But I'd like to take this opportunity to reiterate what I had to say last week about the Glen Show 2.0. We have established a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash Glen Show, two ends, one word. And I encourage those of you so inclined to support the show by going to that site and becoming a patron. I want you to know that we're going to use the funds raised through this account that John McWhorter and I are um, responsible for to improve the quality of the Glenn show. For example, last week I interviewed Shelby Steele and Eli Steele about their film, What Killed Michael Brown. Eli Steele is, was born deaf and his speech is sometimes hard to understand. So we've hired a, uh, someone to create a closed caption for this episode, which you can um, access by clicking on the CC box at the bottom right of the screen, should you choose to view last week's episode. And we're going to be doing other things like that. We're going to be improving the production qualities of the Glenn show uh, in response to uh, many, many suggestions that I've gotten to that effect from viewers uh, by investing in equipment and upgrading the quality of our of our offering here. Um, so that's what I want you to know. We're going to use your funds in part to uh, expand the reach and uh, the effectiveness of the Glenn Show uh, here at bloggingheads.tv. If you have any other questions or suggestions or comments that you'd like to make, I encourage you to visit this Patreon page. John McWhorter and I will certainly pay attention to what you have to say there. And we well might take up some of the questions or comments that are left in our own discussions. John and I will be talking again one week from today on the 23rd of November, when we will be posting the first of the episodes under the new regime of The Glenn Show, which will be available initially only to those who subscribe at Patreon and become available only about a week later to the general public. But again, I want to thank you all, uh, patrons or not, for paying attention to the humble offerings that we are putting forward here at the Glenn Show. Thank you. Hey there, Leon. How are you? Good. I'm fine. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you as well. This is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. And I'm with Leon Wieseltier, who is the editor of the new journal called Liberties uh, that is uh, just being published and is a very exciting new venture from Leon. He's here to tell us about what, what's up in the world of uh, new journal of culture and politics uh, publications and so on. So uh, welcome, uh, Leon. Thank you. So, okay, what's Liberties? Well, it's a quarterly journal of ideas about politics and culture. It is, um, its objectives simply stated are the rehabilitation of liberalism and of the humanities. Um, it is an unsafe space, uh, intellectually, 
Um, it is an attempt to provide writers with the room that they need to really think their thoughts. Uh, I'm, you know, I've been very weary of brevity and velocity uh, for a very long time. And what I want to do is give writers lots of room uh, about serious subjects to really um, make arguments or give analyses. Um, some of the pieces will be, of course, intensely polemical because uh, controversy has always been my business. Uh, and in fact, an open society is designed for controversy, not for consensus. Uh, you know, I think like like everybody, I worry sometimes about the polarization in our society, but it's not what I worry about the most, because uh, we in our founding documents and in our in the nature, the philosophical structure of our institutions, we have no fantasy of unanimity. I mean, there are everybody cannot be right about everything. And there are deep philosophical differences being played out. And so I think that owing to the reluctance of many people to speak their minds for various reasons that we all know about, um, what I want to do is provide a space, as they say, for people to publish essays of the sort that, frankly, they couldn't get published elsewhere right now. Okay, so this is... Uh... Uh, the the need for what you're doing is an indictment of what's being already done, uh, the inadequacies of the platforms that one thinks about for the kind of long-form journalism that you're talking about. I mean, I think of The New Yorker, uh, I think of well, The but Atlantic. You see, here's the thing. It's not just uh, – I don't think of The New Yorker. It's not good for you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but um, but I, no, no, no. It's not just a question of long-form and short-form. It's also – the question of the utter politicization and political synchronization of almost everything that's out there. In other words, most people right now, the New York Times, which is particularly egregious in this, the New Yorker, uh, the Atlantic to a certain extent, they treat culture as a form of politics. They review art politically. They look for political signals in art. Um, they expect art uh, to conform ideologically to certain prior assumptions. Uh, everything, everything has been politicized, which is to say over-politicized. And one of the things that liberties will show, not just by argument, but also by example, I hope, is that it is, is the autonomy of art that no one should be threatened by that, that the most profound human expressions, um, which is finally what culture is made up of, should not be subjected to a political standard and should not be enlisted in, in a political cause. Uh, so, um, as I say, it's not just the space. I mean, it's not just that they're real essays. It's that... Um, there's an there's going to be an air of independence about them from the various gangs. Um, you know, right now, basically, there's the Sharks and the Jets. Uh, that's what there is. And, you know, and, and whereas I will vote against Trump, 
um, I have to say that the 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 struggle that we have that we that I believe we must fight is a two pronged simultaneous struggle against both fascists and commissars. Um, you know, nobody ever promised us that there would only be one struggle at a time. Life is not like that. Uh, and so that's part of the spirit of what I'm doing. So I can hear some critics uh, saying now, well, this is, uh, uh, this is the silence is complicity argument that the, the effort to opt out of politics is itself a kind of political stance. Uh, these are that's right. And that's, that itself is one of the poisonous forms of politicization. I mean, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, the Metropolitan Museum of Art had a retrospective of the paintings of Thomas Cole, who was, he was the early 19th century landscape painter up in the Catskills, whose whose paintings basically invented American romanticism. He was a very accomplished landscape painter and historical allegorical painter, and their critic wrote a review of these landscapes, and he wondered what these landscapes have to teach us in the era of Me Too. Now, the answer is nothing, and that's just fine, and that's just fine, because, you know, even, even people who struggle against injustice don't live only in the realm of politics. We live in many realms. We live in many realms. I mean, if you will... One of the striking characteristics historically of African-American culture, which, of course, was for the entirety of its history, uh, a long struggle against injustice, was the extent to which this same culture produced works and expressions high and low that had absolutely nothing to do with politics. From which, you know, you would not know from the blues or or certain poems or certain novels or so on, who was president or what legend, you know, or, or, or et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's very important. Uh, and, and I should add that was also the case with, with the Jews. If you look at the history of the Jewish people, it is not just the history of an oppressed group. It is the history of a people uh, that cannot be reduced to their oppression which is one of the reasons they survived, because they had inner resources, just as the African-American community had, which historians have documented now for a very long time. And so the depoliticization of discourse about culture and art and spiritual life and personal life and intimate life uh, and so on is actually a way of guaranteeing that people will know how to lead a full life in any social circumstances, even in circumstances of injustice, because obviously we cannot postpone our full human lives to when justice arrives, because justice is always a long time coming, however much we want to hurry it. So this distinction is very important to me. I want to ask you, Leon, how you think the failure to attend to this distinction has corrupted both assessment of art and the prosecution of politics. I perhaps assume uh, something in saying so that you do think uh, that 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 this uh, politicization of everything makes for bad art 
artistic criticism, but also makes in a way for bad politics as well. Uh, do you want to opine on that? Well, yeah, sure. Look, look, it's hard. Um, I don't know what your views about Trump are. I despise him. And I think that um, every morning for the last four years, we have woken up to a national disgrace and to a national emergency. That's my view. And, um, and I understand for that reason why it's very hard not to think about politics all the time. Uh, because politics has so overwhelmed our our existences, yeah. so uh, partly because of the you know the media, the, you know the new technologies, and partly because of the strategy of inundation that the White House uses to just you know to, you know it, to, to keep the adrenaline flowing in 320 million people um, and so on. It's very easy to understand why one would be thoroughly politicized. And I have no problem with that, except when it begins to corrupt and lead to misunderstandings of culture. Uh, And by culture, I mean, you know, all the arts, high and low, all of them, all of them. I mean, if you know, and and so, yes, I think that... um, and these, by the way, and this is true no matter who the president is. My point, go ahead. Sorry, Glenn. No, I was going to, I feel like I should actually say something in response to you. You don't know what I think about Trump. And I, and I don't share your, uh, your heightened antipathy. I, 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 don't, I don't necessarily agree with your claim that it's a national emergency. Um, I, I think Trump is distasteful in many ways, and I think, He's certainly susceptible to being criticized for doing a poor job, at least in some aspects of his presidency. But I'm perhaps just in reaction, um, loath to get on this uh, on this bandwagon of uh, personalizing to Trump what I think is a set of transformations that are going on in the country. The election of Trump is an expression of that. I mean, I used to say early in uh, the Trump era. Uh, the sky is not falling. The tectonic plates are shifting. Uh, I'm interested in these people for whom an appeal to the Second Amendment actually resonates uh, in these uh, evangelical Christians who are prepared to look past Trump's personal uh, peccadilloes in order to uh, latch on to his uh, willingness to put uh, uh, give voice to their uh, to their cultural conservatism. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what the post-Cold War American approach to global affairs is supposed to be in response to someone who says, I'm prepared to put America first, and I, I think this, uh, we're going to save the planet uh, crusade of, uh, of uh, you know, sort of uh, upper uh, waspy elite uh, nobility uh, is uh, is bad for the people who are working in the in the Midwest and the in the plants and in the factories. Um, I mean, you know, I, so so in other words, I I I I am in reaction against the smug know it all, uh, uh, morally supercilious uh, colleagues of mine in the academy who think that they could pronounce on every really uh, difficult uh, question of uh, social uh, and human ethics. Uh, with a certitude that allows them to keep me from being able to voice what I want to say when I want to say it, uh, yeah. whatever, I, you know, yeah, the, well, all I, these people on their crusades and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a communitarian. I'm not a, 
uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, Burke wasn't wrong about everything. I want to, you know, everybody's rushing me with this newfound outrage about this or that. And to some degree, the anti-Trump crowd reminds me of, puts a bad taste in my mouth. So I just can't get on that, get on that train. Oh, Trump's a racist. Right. Let me just finish this. Trump's oh, sorry, a racist. No, no, no. I, I just want to, you know, since I'm saying something that I will, I'm going to get blowback about, I just, I just want to be clear. Uh, perhaps, perhaps Trump is a racist. He certainly wouldn't be alone. Uh, he wouldn't be alone uh, uh, if I were to cons- consider uh, only Democrats in terms of who's a racist. Uh, the effort to stampede me, I'm talking about now as an African-American, mm-hmm. by terrifying me that there's a quote-unquote racist in the right, by misquoting what he says at a news conference and by uh, imputing motives to him that then when they get played out in court, uh, don't get you know uh, justified by the findings of people, who, whatever. Uh, I feel, don't tell me what I'm supposed to think about this. So I'm not on the, uh, you know, Trump's uh, existential threat to the Republic. Oh, wow. I, I thought that impeachment was a fiasco, et cetera. Yeah. Well, no, no, I respect your views. I think, of the, uh, I mean, you've said a lot to which I would, I would say the following. Um, first, I would say that, you know, not all bandwagons are bad. It all depends on where the wagon's going. Just like, you know, when people say, speak truth to power, I always used to say, well, that depends on what power is saying, um, et cetera. I think that um, at the level of voting, we're all on a bandwagon because we're, we're all on one of two bandwagons unless we choose not to vote. At the level of intellectual discourse and so on, um, I think you're right that Trump was as much the effect as the cause of the crisis that we're in. Uh, I think that um, we are, you're right, we are living in an age of really rattling transformations, uh, some of which we haven't even come to grips with. I think that um, on particular, on race, I have to say, I, I certainly appreciate um, your feeling that there is an overwhelming tyrannical consensus that is formed uh, on the left about certainly not just what is proper or improper to say, but that um, but anyone who doesn't say that is, seems to be guilty of some sort of race treason. And I des- despise all that stuff. I really do. Um, I think that Trump, even if he's not the only racist in the country, is the president of the United States, and he represents us, and he has said things in office that break creative new ground, not just in vulgarity, but in moral ugliness. It's just, I have to say, you know, the mind can wrap itself around almost anything, but my shock at Trump just somehow keeps getting refreshed. Uh, you know, he's the gift that keeps on giving in that respect. Um, I think that uh, I think that there are legitimate arguments to be had in this country, as there were before Trump, about social policy and economic policy and so on. Right. Uh, I don't think that everybody who's against, who's for Trump is against justice. I don't think that the Trump vote 
is just millions and millions of racists. So there are racists there. What always troubled me about the Trump vote was not that they were all racists, but that for none of them was racism a deal breaker. That, that's what always troubled me about that community. The Christian evangelicals, I have to tell you, I, um, I'm in my way a religious man and I have some understanding of their, of, of, of their approach. Um, I don't see that they are in any great danger of, uh, any kind. I don't see that. I don't agree that, that religious freedoms in this country are endangered. Um, and certainly as soon as Barrett gets on the court, uh, they're even more secure. Um, I don't see anybody of any religion being told that they can't practice their religion unless they want to commit animal sacrifice or polyandry or polygamy or something like that. Um, I just have a different approach to all this. Um, I think that there is something um, authoritarian about Trump's mentality. I don't think he has a democratic bone in his body. Uh, I really don't. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's comfortable in the company of other authoritarians around the world. Uh, on foreign policy, you and I may disagree. I'm an unrepentant uh, interventionist. Um, I think that the United States not only can do good around the world, but has an obligation to do good around the world, even if previous attempts, some previous attempts to do good around the world have led to abuses or crimes or mistakes. We've had mixed results. And I don't know about you, but in my view, mixed results in this life is a really great outcome. I mean, in a foreign policy, in a marriage, in anything, mixed results are a lot. And I really do think that, and by the way, I have no great expectations of, from Biden about this. I mean, the only thing the only thing that there is no polarization about in this country right now is in the general agreement, everybody for their own reasons, that the United States has been right to withdraw from the world. That, you know, that the United States does not have any, what they used to call responsibility to protect, that rescue and assistance and humanitarianism and human rights no longer should have pride of place in our foreign policy, that sending troops abroad is... Um, in some way, an exercise of imperialism, et cetera, et cetera. I think all of that is nonsense, but both parties agree on it. Both parties agree on it. I want to ask you what you think about the administration's uh, policies in the Middle East, about Israel-Palestinian conflict and such. I think that the uh, the so-called Abraham Accords, the deals with the UAE and Bahrain and Oman, yeah. is is a really historic achievement. I think that it was always Israel's ultimate dream to live with, um, to live in peace with its Arab neighbors, as they say. A friend of mine made a very smart and funny joke about the Abraham Accords. He said that the person who gets the credit for it is not Trump, but Obama, because he scared the daylights out of them with the Iran deal. <laughs> I was, was going to ask about the Iran deal. Yeah, I was against the Iran deal. I testified before the House against the Iran deal. And I uh, acknowledging I, the annexation of Golan. Uh, oh, the, the annexation of the Golan Heights, the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem, you know, as a Zionist, it satisfies me a little bit emotionally. But as someone who cares mainly about Israel's security and who believes that Israel will, that will not really live in peace until some solution is found to the Palestinian problem, it was a wash for me. I was 
I did not need the embassy to be in Jerusalem. I would not agitate to move it back to Tel Aviv. But that 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 was just gestural stuff for me. Um, I think that the Palestinians are equally to blame for the stasis in that conflict. I think there are no heroes here. I think that neither the Israeli leadership nor the Palestinian leadership are prepared to do anything that would lead to two states. I think two states are the, are the only solution for the Jewish state. Um, the only one. I mean, anyone who's looked at a map and some numbers sees that. So I think that Trump, um, the, you know, the, the, Gulf, the, the, the Gulf deal is a big accomplishment. And for the rest, I think that he has done everything he could to keep Netanyahu in power. I think Netanyahu is a disaster for that country. And I think Netanyahu has done everything he could to keep Trump in power. Um, but yeah, that's sort of, that's my view. I'm much more concerned, I should say, by, um, our policies or non-policy towards Russia. I like our policy towards China, though I'm not sure to what extent it is really a strategy. I mean, you know, it's, uh. You mean that he's become more muscular and... adversarial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, China's, yeah. China's on the march. China's coming to get us. And, you know, and Obama's, those eight years when it came to China and Russia were a fool's paradise. Now, I'm not mistaken, Stephen Cohen, the uh, Russia person who just died recently just died. Yeah, yeah. for many years, he was saying uh, early on in the Trump era that the obsession with uh, uh, Russia and Trump's supposed implication and whatnot was distorting the way in which American policy toward Russia was developing in deleterious ways. Do you agree with that? Um, Yes, well, it depends what he meant. I mean, Trump's obsession with Russia is obviously just another form of Trump's obsession with Trump. That is to say, he's still fighting a 2016 election. I mean, he's the only man I ever knew or heard of who spent four years contesting an election that he won. Um, And so he's put the whole Russia question into the context of his electoral fortunes, which is a very narrow focus. Well, his opponent alleged that he, in effect, was a uh, compromised uh, uh, traitor who was under the control of uh, Vladimir Putin. I'll tell you. I, I don't mean, know. I, would, I would want to rebut that charge if it were made against me. I would, too. It's, um, I don't know enough about that. I don't know enough. I don't know anyone who knows enough about that. Maybe the FBI knows about that. His behavior towards Putin has been, from the very beginning, has been, to put it mildly, bizarre. Just bizarre. I mean, Russia has, Russia has now, it, it started with Obama. Historians will show, by the way, that in foreign policy, the continuities between Obama and Trump are very striking. And Trump has given a lot of the former Obama people the opportunity to swan around like outraged interventionists when, in fact, they were in their own way withdrawalists for eight years. Um, but I think that uh, at a, in a period in which Russia is extending its sway, has become the go-to power in the Middle East, is, is attacking in cyber ways and others the, the, the democracies of Western Europe, the yeah. United States, and so on. I mean, we are, we are under attack uh, uh, and in a period in which Russia has been doing this, the responsibility of the president, and I include Obama in this, is actually to raise the cost 
of this adventurism and this regional imperialism. Uh, and we have done nothing of that kind because it's still about um, 2016. I mean, you know, 2016 will be for Trump what 2003 was for the left. It'll, it's his Iraq war. That'll always be the paradigm for everything, for everything. Uh, and you can't operate that way. Well, I'm, I'm going to say on Trump's behalf, uh, the um, uh, um, Russiagate, so-called Russiagate, uh, long uh, Mueller uh, inquiry uh, and the impeachment inquiry, uh, sitting in that position, uh, I'd have to assume I'm facing implacable foes who haven't accepted the outcome of the election, which I won. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to just lay down on that. I'm going to fight back on that. You know, I'll but, tell you, when you're president, I mean, I've always thought, this doesn't happen, by the way, to almost any president that I ever witnessed, but I always thought that on the day you wake up, in the morning you wake up in the White House, that somehow in your head you move from politics to history in some way. The stakes get really high. I mean, they just do. Um, now, we know that this, most presidents do not make that move. Trump certainly hasn't made that move. Um, the, yeah. the large thing, the strategic thing, the wise thing would have been to consider Russia and our policy to Russia only as the president of the United States and the commander in chief not as the Republican candidate for president in 2016. Agreed. And he certainly did not do that. No, Glenn. No, he did not. No, he did not. Let's talk about liberty some more. What's in the first issue? Oh, lots of wonderful things. Um, we have a, an essay against environmental apocalypticism by Michael Ignatieff. We have a brilliant essay by Laura Kipnis, which is a defense of transgression in an age when the left that used to specialize in transgression has turned Puritan. Oh, I like it. I like it. I read her book. Have, I liked her book a lot. We have our friend Thomas Williams on James Baldwin trying to reclaim Baldwin from certain recent interpretations of him that would erase the distinction between Baldwin and a certain kind of black radicalism. This is early Baldwin versus late Baldwin? You know, or this... It sort of is. It, yeah. It's not exactly that, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll, yeah, that's right. I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, many years ago in the 80s, I sent, there was a biography of Baldwin coming out, and I'd read some stuff by an up-and-coming young African-American scholar, who I'm not going to name, but whom we all know. And I, um, I wrote him a letter saying, would you like to review this biography of Baldwin? He immediately said, yes, he'd love to. I said, good, take all the space you need. Baldwin's an endlessly fascinating figure and so on. So the piece comes in and the author greatly admires Baldwin, which is terrific. Problem is that he greatly admired the early Baldwin and he greatly admired the late Baldwin. <laughs> so I wrote back to him and I, I called him and I said, look, here's the problem if the late Baldwin and the early Baldwin were not the same Baldwin, they didn't agree with each other. I said, if you want to praise the early Baldwin, I will happily publish it at some length. If you want to praise the late Baldwin, the right. nation will happily publish it at some length. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out he wanted to appear in the New Republic, and things worked out just fine. Okay. Um, but so Thomas has written this wonderful essay about that. Um, 
we've got lots and lots of stuff. Um, I, you know, I've got the, I've got the magazine, the journal right here. I'm blanking out. Yeah, Mark Lilla has written a very brilliant. Uh, wow. Uh, thing on on political indifference, on politicization. Um, Michael Ignatiev, Louise Gluck, who just won the Nobel Prize, has poems in the in the issue, which was a good omen. What a uh, coup! What a coup! Oh, it goes on, it goes on. I mean, Jim Wolcott has done the most hilarious um, evisceration of the journal Jacobin. I don't know if you're familiar with Jacobin. I'm not closely familiar with it. I know oh, what it is. One of the most darkly funny um, elements of the of the contemporary left. Uh, we have lots and lots of the Israeli writer David Grossman has written a beautiful piece about literature and peace. Uh, we've got lots of wonderful things, and the second issue is going to be just as rich. I mean, the issue that's, is four hundred pages long. That's exciting. A quarterly, four hundred yeah. pages. So this well, is not to be. This is to be read like this. Not by scrolling through my uh, screen? It's it's an elegantly designed book that is a journal. And it's basically three months of reading is what it is. Uh, That's the idea. And, you know, from my experience at the old magazine, I learned many, many years ago that if you put something out and in your magazine every reader only finds three or four or five things to read, you're a success. Not every piece and every journal is for every reader. And so uh, we're going to um, see to it that the range is very broad. Now, I thought print journalism was in decline. Magazines were going out of business. Uh, how do you manage to, uh, you know, how are you going to make a go of this? How does, how does it pay? Well, we have, I mean, I have a very generous and brilliant publisher. Um, but more than that, I think that, the death of print and the death of attention and the death of independence has been exaggerated. Um, I think that uh, people like to read books. They really do. We will have some sort of online presence. I mean, this is 2020. Um, it's not as if we're just going to, you know, hide under a, hide our light under a bushel of paper, but um I, I'm looking, I really believe in the integrity of this, of this form. And so far the response has been wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, I'm not, um, you know, we don't need, this is not a mass circulation, anything, you know, I don't know what the circulation of partisan review was in its time, but believe me, it wasn't in the five figures. And, if you want to, if if you're interested in influencing uh, your readers and the culture, then you have to create over time an intellectual climate. By example, I mean I sometimes refer to what we're doing here as an exercise in climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, it's a meteorological experiment. We're trying to get very gifted, independent, learned people to write about very urgent matters uh, sufficiently at a length, sufficient to establish what they want to say. And we're trying to put this in the hands of thoughtful Americans. In absolute numbers, you and I know that in this country of 320 million people, if that's what it is, in absolute numbers, there are more natural readers for liberties than we're ever going to find. 
in absolute numbers. I mean, you know, there are, what shall we say, are there, you know, the New Republic, when I was there, our circulation at one point was 80, then it was, I think we maybe broke 100 once, we went down to 50, 60, but there were more easily a quarter of a million New Republic readers in this country or more. We just couldn't find them. We just couldn't find them. But if you're talking about the, the percentage of our citizenry that is interested in, you know, stopping the, the, the music and sitting down and, and reflecting and chewing on things. And um, we've got more readers out there than we're ever going to find. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about that. Um, no, and also, you know, there is this feeling you have. I've always felt about all the traditions that I've inherited that they must never die on my watch. That is to say, I've always thought that if you inherit a tradition and you live in a tradition and you develop it and you contribute to it, but you do not transmit it, then you've betrayed it. Then you've betrayed it. And this is a kind of, um, this harks back to an older tradition of, of, of essay writing, polemical writing, humanistic writing, that has been crowded out, not just by economic realities, but also by intellectual and cultural and political realities. Uh, I mean, if the problem were only economic, that would be sad enough, but it wouldn't be. It, but, but it's much sadder that actually there are fewer and fewer places for certain kinds of people to publish in their own words. I mean, there are places that will publish certain things if you agree to let them take out the adverbs and the adjectives and never say anything except that Martin Luther King was a great American. I mean, that, you can get that in. But controversy, as I say, controversy, real controversy, not, not Twitter controversy, but real controversy is what the system was made for, is what the system was made for. And so I wanted to create um, an organ of genuinely thoughtful controversy. That's how I think about it. There's so much virtue signaling. Oh, there, yeah. There's so much cancellation and uh, uh, political correctness. It, it's almost become a cliche. I mean, when uh, it feels like uh, you're repeating yourself when you complain about these things. Um, and I'm just wondering. Uh, uh, Can I interrupt you for a second, Glenn? Yeah, sure. I mean, what I would say, I just want to add, because you just put your finger on something important. There are two things that need to be done. The, the, the crusade against cancellation obviously has to continue even if people are tired of it because the canceled people are not tired of it. And a lot of people have been badly hurt and unjustly treated by this culture. On the other hand, it's not enough just to attack and denounce the cancel culture. You've also got to go ahead and say and write and present what it is that you damn wanted to say. In other words, the, you know, the, the substance of, of what was being canceled. So it's not just about rights, it's also about the argument. And what I hope to do is both of them, is both of them. Yeah, uh, I like that very much. I mean, I've been saying to my friend Jonathan Haidt at Heterodox Academy, who, you know, takes the view that we want to have uh, viewpoint diversity in uh, the academy and so forth. And I agree that we want to have viewpoint diversity. 
uh, that I, I sometimes think that a focus that's only on procedures, you know, who gets to speak, right. that they shout somebody down, but that doesn't engage the right. the substantive, you know, they've got two levels that you were arguing. You're arguing about arguing, and then that's there's the argument. And if you never get down to the argument, you know, some of these people just have bad ideas. Some of the ones who don't want to allow you right. to speak, they also have bad ideas, and their ideas need to be refuted as well as you their know, I procedural level among I, can can you see me? Can I see something? There's something you disappeared into a white mist. Yeah, I I, I think uh, my lens was dirty. Now it's clean. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, there was two levels of argument. Uh, white small W. What I was going to say was I used to get into trouble with my with my Jewish brothers and sisters because there is a policy among Hillel's and other Jewish institutions not to allow anyone from BDS to speak in those institutions. And I hated that policy because I think BDS can be refuted in 10 well-educated minutes. It's rubbish. Um, But if you don't allow people in, all you signal is fear of what they're saying. That's all you show. And so I think that Everybody should be allowed to say everything. I mean, you know, if I, you know, if I had to choose between a culture of sensitivity and safety on the one hand and a culture of offensiveness and resilience on the other, I know what I would choose. I mean, I don't mind taking offense because there are times when I will give offense. And that's a bargain that I'm perfectly prepared to make because otherwise will never speak candidly about the differences between us. Okay, so let's talk about BDS. What's wrong with it? It singles Israel out for, uh, first of all, there are many things wrong with it. One is it singles Israel out for, um, for offenses of which many other countries are much more guilty and nobody ever seems to lift a finger. A finger. I mean, I didn't... You know, while people, I mean, for years, people marched, the left in London would march for the Palestinians. I didn't see one march in all of Europe for Ukraine, for example. Not one. Not to, which one. Your, to which your response Secondary. might be, Leon, excuse me for interrupting, I did, but sure. just, a, you know, a response might be precisely because the decency of Israel makes it susceptible to pressures of this kind, whereas uh, a less, uh, uh, a, you know, a less responsive society, there's no point in actually carrying on such well, a Well, I think that's both a form of soft bigotry, if you'll pardon the expression. That's like saying that you can't expect more from Pakistan. Well, why not? Why not? Okay. What was some- secondly, secondly, Israel should not be punished for its decency. I mean, they can't have it both ways. I think that, look, I have always been... Uh, an opponent of the settlement movement in Israel. I've been writing about it, against it, since 1978. And I, I mean, I've been involved, I was involved in the founding of Peace Now in the very beginning. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very hawkish dove, is what I am. I know, I was reading you in the New Republic three decades ago yes. on this. Right, I'm a very hawkish dove. Um, but, uh, but one has to be intellectually honest about this. And anybody who believes that the, that is that Israel is solely responsible for the situation of the Palestinians doesn't know any history. Just doesn't know any history. Um, so, and, and I think it. And there are certain 
precincts of the BDS movement that are not just against Israel's policy in the West Bank, but are against Israel, period. And yep. in some smaller precincts of BDS, the anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Not in all of the precincts, but in a yep. lot of them. Um, you know, people who are anti-Semites can't hide behind the fact that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. They can't hide behind that. And so, um, so there are many reasons that I can't stand BDS, while at the same time, um, you know, I have as a writer for 40 years done anything I possibly could to advance the cause of reconciliation between the communities and of a fair, a fair peace deal um, and of a way of thinking about this problem that, that thinks both in terms of morality and security. For most of, you know, most of the, these decades, this has been a debate between left-wingers who care about morality and right-wingers who care about security, which is nonsense because my concern about Israel's occupation of the West Bank has a great deal to do with my sense of what Israel needs to be safe. And the thing that will undo Zionism completely will be Israel's lack of security. The whole purpose of the establishment of this state was that the Jews will have a place to come to that where they will be secure because they control their own destiny there. That, that was the whole purpose of it. And the, the, the Palestinian population, just by existing and living where it is, and God forbid nobody's going to push them out, um, poses a threat to that unless they're granted sovereignty of their own. So the argument for a two-state solution for me begins with the question of Israeli security. Now, there are moral dimensions, obviously, but, um, but there's a certain kind of critic of Israel who, um, there's a certain kind of sanctimony about the criticism of Israel that I've always found a little odious. I was in Israel uh, a couple of years ago, a uh, delegation led by Walter Russell Mead, uh, supported by the Singer Foundation, taking us around. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent some time in Ramallah. We spent time in Tel Aviv. We spent a lot, a lot of time in Jerusalem. We visited the uh, Gush Etzion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I learned a heck of a lot, I think. And one of the things that astounded me was the difference between the tenor of the conversation that I heard amongst Jews of various political orientation in Israel vis-a-vis the tenor of the conversation that I hear amongst Jews of various political yeah. organizations here in the United States. Yeah. Um, and there was a kind of realism, even in the most left wing of the Jews whom I was talking to in Israel about the situation yeah. that uh, uh, made, made me, uh, that, a lot, that struck me, that it, it was really quite striking to me. Um, I, I was impressed with the extent to which people are dug in in uh, the settlements like uh, Gush Etzion. They're not going anywhere. I mean, they, these people are not well, going Gush anywhere. Certainly. You know, they, you know they, they, no serious peace negotiation imagines Gush Etzion going anywhere. I mean, if you I, look I at where the, the stop, um, excuse me. you know, it's doable. Yeah. Uh, I was struck by the... Uh, state of the Palestinian leaders. We met with uh, Saul Erekat and, and uh, we met with other high uh, PLO officials. These guys are all old and they're tired. And yeah. uh, the young people that we met with in Ramallah, two-state solution is not a part of their vision of the, of the problem. I mean, they, you know, uh, they're, they're a one-state solution bunch, uh, basically. 
And I thought, where is this going? So I don't, you, you think it's still a, a realistic yeah. aspiration? I think that um, where there's a political will, lots of things can be done. I think that fatalism about it plays into the prevailing mood in both camps that it can't be done, that it's too late, the settlements are in too many places, um, that, uh, that that's what the Israeli side thinks, and they've learned to live for more than 50 years with the roads that they can use to drive north that, that, that are more convenient and with so on. Um, and on the Palestinian side, they, you know, in some ominous sense, they're right. You look at the demographics, they can wait. They can wait. Now, that terrifies me. That terrifies me because if one day the Jews who live on the West Bank of the Jordan wake up and they are a minority, uh, then the raison d'etre of Zionism has been annulled. Has been annulled. With, great respect, all, the way, with great respect, Leon, let me, let me just ask you directly. Why would that be such a bad thing so long as the security of the Jewish people against the kinds of historical depredations that we know so much about was was uh, was secure? Because finally the Jews can't rely on anybody but themselves. And that if they do not have sovereignty in their state, and you can argue about the borders, this is not about the borders, this is about the numbers. There are two kinds of Zionism. Revisionist right-wing Zionism cared about the borders, either because um, Jabotinsky wanted the other side of the Jordan River too, or because God promised Abraham all of it. You decide if you like the secular or the religious version. And then there was the view of the the mainstream view of Ben-Gurion and the others that it was about the numbers. The Jews will not be secure unless they have a state in which they are a majority, which means that no legislation can be passed annulling the law of return, which means that Jews who are in trouble in the Soviet Union or in Iran or in Argentina don't have to apply to visa for visas. They can just get on a plane, which means that Jews who are under attack don't have to beg for weapons uh, from whatever source they can find them. I mean, Jewish security, to a great extent, involves Jewish self-reliance. You know, what the greatest concept in the history of Zionism, for me, was enunciated by a late 19th century Russian Jewish physician who wrote a little book called Auto-Emancipation. It's a brilliant concept, and by the way, it's applicable to the psychology of all minority and oppressed groups. Auto-Emancipation. You know, it's like, you remember uh, The Wretched of the Earth, Fanon's book? I do. Everybody always discusses the half that denounces the colonialists. Nobody remembers the second half, which denounces the servility and the lack of self-reliance and, and historical agency of the colonized. There's a whole second half to that. And it's okay. all emancipation. Let, let me, let, excuse me, let me try this. Okay, so here we have the Jewish community in the United States of America. Right. It's prosperous, it's secure, it's powerful, it's, it's, it's self-determining. Why is there, and again, I ask with respect, yeah. the necessity for a sovereign state in order to secure the the peoplehood, uh, the you know, et cetera, since I can see yeah. six million Jews or however many American Jews there are, that's right. Who it's look secure, safe, and it doesn't look like that's in danger. I mean, tell me that I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, no, you're not wrong. Historically, there you can think of the United States of America and Israel in terms in, in terms of Jewish history 
you can think of America and Israel as the two experiments in getting away from the disastrous bargain of Jewish life in Europe. So in Europe, the Jews had to beg for rights and they would be granted rights and the rights would be withdrawn because the rights were not axiomatic and, 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 and anti-Semitism was, was an element of the culture. It was not something illegitimate. Uh, people, people got elected on anti-Semitic platforms. I'm talking just about the modern period and so on. Mm-hmm. This, whole, this whole model of rights and court Jews, and that, had, that, that didn't work. It failed disastrously. So there are two other models. One is the model <coughs> of the United States, which is a multi-ethnic, pluralistic democracy. Um, and by the way, that's why I think the United States is a revolution also in world history not just for our constitution, but because we long before there was multiculturalism as an ideology, we were a multicultural and multi-ethnic society. We had growth pains. Obviously, you know, racism is, is complicates the analysis. Though I will tell you that I remember when I first read Roots or when I saw certain other uh, films and things about African-American history, I remember thinking, well, wouldn't it be positive um, and this is, by the way, what I liked about Africanism, too. If, if, if a race in America could learn, come to be regarded as an ethnic group, the way everybody else is. I remember, the thing I remember about roots, I remember thinking, oh, well, finally, Africa's the old country. The way, now, they, obviously, blacks came here differently. They're the only group in history who came to the United States unwillingly, against their will, forcibly. Uh, in bondage, and so on. There are many important distinctions that need to be made. But we are a multi-ethnic society by our nature. We are a pluralistic society by our nature. That's, by the way, what, um, what, what a lot of this race debate now is forgetting about. Because as long as you talk about races, you were kind of stuck. Um, Europe is not, has no tradition of multi-ethnicity. European nationalism is that there's a major that the cultural boundaries and the political boundaries should coincide, ideally, so that every nation has a state and every state forms a nation. Since they don't ever coincide perfectly, you have this thing that became known as the problem of minorities, right? We don't have the problem of minorities, right? We are a, we are a state of states, if you will, or a community of communities or a group of groups. And this is our natural existence, even though it took us a while to figure out how to do this. Now, so that's one model where the the interests of the Jewish community in this country, in the Jewish diaspora, are honored and recognized, in which rights are axiomatic, in which the the interests of the group are are dignified, and so on. Um, The other model is the model of the nations of the Jewish nation state which basically involved the Jews learning from European nationalism that every nation should have a state. And in the case of the Jews, there was the added security argument because, you know, yeah. the, people, the people who are weakest in history, and now too, by the way, if you look at the refugee situation, the one thing you don't ever want to be in this world is stateless. You really don't. And so there is this other model. So I think of America and Israel as a friendly competition in alternatives to the disaster. That, that's, that's how I think of it. Um, 
And that's why I don't think that, I think Israelis to a certain extent misunderstand the American Jewish situation in this country. If they think that the United States is just another address in the exile and that sooner or later it will happen here. I have to tell you, even after Charlottesville and even after Jews will not replace us and even after all sorts of things, I still believe that this country is different. That, it, that it's unprecedented in the history of the Jewish people, the way it is unprecedented in the history of all the people who live here, uh, with the exception of the Native Americans. Um, and so, but there are these two models. There are these two models. Insofar as Zionism is a nationalism and requires a state for its people, that state, ha- I, 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 would t- I, w- I want a smaller state with a Jewish majority over a larger state in which there is in which there is even a large Jewish minority. That's how I think about the problem. That's why I'm a Zionist. Okay, let me ask you at least uh, uh, before we go. I want to get your view on uh, what's going on right now in American politics. Not the election, but the right. moment of racial reckoning, the George Floyd riots, which Nicole Hannah Jones at the New York Times takes pride. And seeing called the 1619 riots, yes, yes, uh, and uh, the likes of Al Sharpton and company as national leaders, the uh, riots, um, and so on. I mean, uh, Trump is uh, trying to get some a boost out of the reaction, the predictable reaction in certain quarters of American politics to a concern about this kind of thing. He's pro cop. Uh, we got cops being assassinated. Uh, we we got mobs forming outside of hospitals where cops who have been shot are being cared for, shouting, mm-hmm. "I hope they die! I hope they die!" Um, and so on. Uh, yeah. Look, I think that this. I think this can be said in the context of the long struggle within African American politics between what I think of as the tradition of Dr. King and the tradition of Malcolm. I think there are these two traditions. I think that what's happened in recent years is that Malcolm has vanquished Dr. King and that's a catastrophe. Now, I should hasten to add that I understand emotionally the reasons for some of this change because the fact is black people just kept getting killed by cops. Now, I'm not anti-cop, and I'm not, I mean, I, you know, but and I'm, I'm not for defunding the police, I, I'm, and I, I, et cetera, but it just kept happening. It just kept happening. It's going so, to continue to happen. I know, I know, but I have to tell you, you know, I was, I was always one of those liberals who believed that in, on the question of civil rights and African-American politics, that the glass was half full, not half empty or even more than half full. But after Ferguson and Freddie Gray and Staten Island and all, I don't have to, it rattled me. I got to tell you, it rattled me. However, however, emotions are, should not be mistaken for ideas or for politics. I mean, one of the things that ails this country now is this thing called populism. And what populism really is, is emotionalism in politics. So, I understand the the outrage, but the fact is, you know, when I read that awful book by Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, 
between the world myself, and me. Yeah. I thought to myself, you must be kidding. This is, um, this is just black power all over again. I mean, it's all, you know, and it offers nothing but pessimism and fatalism and solidarity. Um, and, you know, and I recognized what I was reading because it was actually quite interesting. I come from the, the Jewish version of the black culture that is represented in that book. That is to say, my parents are Holocaust survivors. I grew up in a community of Holocaust survivors in deepest, darkest Brooklyn. Um, I was actually associated with Mayor Kahana and the Jewish Defense League briefly because um, I was angry at the world. I was taught to believe that the whole world wants to kill us, that all you want to know, need to know about life is Auschwitz, that we can't trust anybody but ourselves, that only radical solutions will protect us because otherwise you're just an assimilationist the Jewish equivalent of you're what they used to call an all right Nick, which is the Uncle Tom thing. Change Jews to blacks, and we've got Tanhasi cults down pretty well, right there. Well, isn't that so? And yeah. I and I remember reading his book and thinking, man, I, I, I this was good when I was eighteen, but you know, I this doesn't work for didn't work for us, and it's not going to work for you because you offer nothing. I agree with you, Leon. I mean, I'll take responsibility as a black intellectual to say that we should not allow those voices to go unrebutted on behalf of our own people. But I want to know why the white uh, cultural establishment uh, has uh, made this uh, uh, Malcolm X inspired, uh, 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 you know, uh, view of the world on behalf of black people, which is a dead end. It goes nowhere. Glenn, uh, you why, know, this is the why they've made it into uh, such a, uh, you know, a popular, uh, you know, how many copies of those books? How many awards? How many right. uh, laudatory reviews written? How many, you know, David Brooks saying, reading Ta-Nehisi Coates White. That was Remember, the title of a the column. Right, that he said in the column, it, or should a white person just shut up this time? I mean, yes. what, so... Look, look, you and I know that... Um, <laughs> The, the conversation about race in this country would be a lot richer and a lot deeper if white liberals were not so afraid of being called racist, right? That's their worst nightmare. Their absolutely worst nightmare. Um, and, you know, I mean, Coates called me a racist when the New Republic, when Chris Hughes destroyed the New Republic and it died, he wrote an imperishable column in The Atlantic um, to the effect that what's everyone upset about? It was racist. It ran no rate. He actually said, I have it, that no black people ever worked at the New Republic. And then he says, I know I've researched this. Actually, he didn't research it because it's false. Um, I'm not going to go into that because I've got a PhD in that subject. But but the fact is, um, the comedy of white liberal guilt is one of the oldest comedies in American culture. I said to someone yesterday, I want what I would like some really some satirical magazine to do is to take the old photograph of the party at Leonard Bernstein's house, the radical chic party. Oh, that Tom Wolfe wrote about. (laughs) Yeah. And airbrush in the people who would be there now. (laughs) (laughs) Because I know who I put in there now. And no, that it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. Um, you know, and it's, um, we're, you know, with, 
we're in this together. I mean, we really are. In some deep, deep way, we're in this together. And if you're in anything together, one has a responsibility to go and meet the people with whom one shares a society. You know, one of the problems for these liberals is that the black people they meet are all fellow members of elite land, which is its own country, which should give out passports. I mean, it's its own country. Um, you know, you can't learn a lot about black life from, I assume, I've never done it, from lunching with Darren Walker. I have to assume that. Yeah, president of the Ford Foundation. Yeah. A perfectly decent human being, but uh, I'm sure not the only print. black guy on the planet, for sure. Yeah, no, you might, sure you might try a barbershop print. or a church basement or a pool hall yeah. or, or, or a soul know, food restaurant. Or, or a small jazz club. Or, or, uh, exactly. You know, just, just go make friends. Just go make friends. Um, I mean, I remember a time in 1980, I was sitting in Jerusalem in a left-wing cafe with my left-wing friends, all of whom I adore and are my brothers. Um, and we were just nodding in agreement. And I thought, this is boring. I want to go to the West Bank and meet the settlers. I mean, I kind of go. So I called the journalist and his Israeli friend, and I said, take me. And he did. Uh, I mean, you gotta, you got to get out. Yeah. you got to get out. Well, Leon, uh, I'm really glad you were able to give us some time. It looks no. like Liberties, your new venture, the journal Liberties, is going to be uh, getting a lot of people out uh, and heard so. in contentious engagement with political and cultural debates. Uh, so I'm looking forward to see what, what uh, comes of this, uh, Leah. Well, thank you, my friend. It's good to see you again. And you. see you again. It really is. I'm glad you're, you're looking well, which I'm very happy to see. Thank you. All right. Thank you. So okay. take care. Good. Take uh, care, brother, and we'll be in touch. Indeed. I okay. look forward to that, hearing from you, Leon. Okay, Glenn. Be well. Bye. Bye.